On this episode of St. Louis in Tune, we're going to be returning to civility as we always do. We have John Gunther, author and architect in studio, to talk about his latest book on the Gateway Arch. And there are celebrations and birthdays of sorts in the St. Louis metropolitan area. Don't forget our word for the day, and you got to stick around for the humor right now on St. Louis in Tune. Well, greetings, listeners in listener land. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, government, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. We originate from and connect the gateway city to what is going on regionally, nationally, internationally, and as Mark always indicates to us, galactically. That's right. We are out there. We are out there in outer space sometimes. We are spaced out sometimes. Not not sometimes. I I think it's more of an all-the-time kind of thing. (laughs) And we're we're not taking any of the uh, CBD or any of that other kind of stuff to be spaced. No, we haven't tried that yet. It's just naturally. And we're baby boomers. So what's that all about? Well, (laughs) Well, speaking of babies, in our return to civility, when babysitting, Mm -hmm. leave the house looking better than when you got there. You def, you're, you'll definitely get rehired, mm. and you'll feel good knowing you gave those tired parents an extra hour of sleep. Wow. Now, for all those babysitters out there, that's really a good deal. I think know? so, too. You know, that might up your, your hourly pay. Yeah. Your, your tip. You might yeah, get a bigger absolutely. tip. Yeah, Put, absolutely. You know, putting those dishes away, mm-hmm. getting them out of the sink, whatever it takes, you know, tidying up that living room. Right. Putting those toys back in the box. Right. Don't just eat all their food. Right. Just, you know, and, and mess up everything. Just... That's a good idea. Yeah. I like that. So and and do it not being asked to do it. Just do it. Oh my! Because you're a swell person. Oh my! Nothing like a swell person. Nothing like people doing things and not being told to do. No, it sounds familiar. Something my parents used to tell me. <laughs> it does still happen though. I know we should talk. It still does happen though, doesn't it? It does. It does. And bless those people that do it. Well, that and are kind. It, it's it, kindness. It is kindness. You know, simple it's being word. Considerate too. Uh huh. Yeah, thoughtful. That's we could go on with those. These are all good. Things. I love all these. Are these adjectives? Yes, they you're are. You're the, uh, yes. you're the academic guy here. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Some might be a, a little adverbial. Adverbial. I knew we were going to go down that road. <laughs> That's above my Not education. A no, okay. Linguistics. Yeah. That never worked out for me. Well, we're not linguists, but we do love to talk to people here in this uh, in this studio. And architect John Gunther is in studio. He has produced a distinguished body of architecture that has contributed significantly to the, I love this, the built environment. He was elevated to Mm. fellowship in the American Institute of Architects, the AIA, for notable contributions to the advancement of the profession of architecture and design. Wow. He's been a lecturer in the College of Architecture at Washington University in St. Louis, where he taught the introduction to design processes and co-founded and taught, one of my favorites, Mid-Century Modernism in St. Louis, 1930 to 70. He's served as president of the Society of Architectural Historians at the St. Louis Chapter. He's written for the Missouri Architectural Treasures, published by Missouri Life, 25 must-see buildings in Missouri for USA Today, and the intro to the lost St. Louis Riverfront, 1930-43, to which documents the historic riverfront architecture removed in anticipation of the Gateway Arch National Park, which is why he's here to talk about his book, The Gateway Arch, Mm -hmm. and an illustrated timeline. John, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. 
Thank you very much. It's great to be here. You know, as I've looked at this book, there are lots of books on the arch that are out there. And folks in St. Louis, yeah. or even folks who are coming into St. Louis, I'm telling you, this book, mm-hmm. especially if you're from out of town, this is a great book to get to understand the history of St. Louis and why the Arch came about. And I, the reason I say that, because all these thick books, they kind of delve into a mm-hmm. lot of rich things and really good things. Mm-hmm. But what he does, this is an illustrated timeline. He gives snapshots of historical events that took place from the founding, prior to the founding of St. Louis, mm-hmm. all the way up to the current time with some very well-documented resources that are really not used very much, and you have some great stuff in here. So I'm going to shut up and let you talk because nobody wants to hear me talk. You're on because they want to hear you talk. And so the impetus behind this book, because there's probably hundreds of books on the arch. So Mm -hmm. why this one, John? Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much. Um, This is a book that uh, began with an idea actually from Reedy Press, from Josh Stevens, who uh, suggested this format, and I really am grateful for him to do that. Uh, But it also grows out of of, of a lifetime of admiration for the Gateway Arch, and as an architect, uh, just studying its beauty and proportions and construction technology and and design overall, and then in teaching at Washington University in the mid-century modern class, where we would take our students uh, out of the classroom and to the iconic sites in St. Louis in person to see and experience the architecture firsthand. And the Gateway Arch was our first class. Uh, we, we would leave uh, Washington University and, 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 and meet here at the Gateway Arch and study it in person. And I must also say a, th- a thank you and a shout out to Bob Moore, the historian at the park. Uh, he would uh, he would uh, give us great insights into the design and construction and the history of the site. And so, out of this love of of the Gateway Arch and all that went into it, this book grew, and uh, and. It is a book that uh, is concisely written, and it's 90 historical events that led to the Gateway Arch beginning in 1699. Wow. And so we go back to the Louisiana Territory mm-hmm. and then on to the Louisiana Purchase. And when you think of the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial, you think of the expansion through the Louisiana Purchase by Thomas Jefferson. Right. And, and so, um, so it, it is uh, taking you back to the sources of this uh, uh, of this memorial, and so you have a better understanding, a deeper understanding. When you arrive at the arts and you look at it, you can take it in. You just you understand it intuitively. But when you appreciate all that went into it, all the history, um, it, it really makes it a much richer experience. And after I completed the book, I was like, "You're exactly right." My appreciation for the arch, and having been born and raised here in St. Louis is like, well, you know, I need to get down there again. And Mm -hmm. uh, honestly, I have to say, regrettably, I've not been to the new museum since it's opened. Mm -hmm. Uh, And don't live very far away from it. Live a mile away from it. Wow. Have you ever been up the arch? I have been a couple times. But it's been a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. I understand it takes uh, longer to go up than come down. Makes sense. (laughs) Gravity. (laughs) Make sure the brakes are working. I I know. know. Sorry. I think some of the things that uh, surprised me in here – uh, which, by the way, for those middle school and high school teachers, great primary resources mm. uh, in this. Uh, you need to use this in a classroom kind of setting. Are the um, some of the things that surprised me, especially was the design, the initial design that Saarinen had, mm-hmm. was was a box, a square for the arch. Um, it it was 
actually, uh, we're talking about the cross-section of the arch. We know the arch today with its distinctive triangular cross-section. Right. Uh, it was actually a quadrilateral, uh, so each the legs were uh, basically, uh, you know, a rectangle. Okay. And, and, um, and that in itself was a very dramatic form, but it's interesting when you think about the interconnectivity of history and if but for what you know could have happened or would have happened. Uh, it happened that Carl Millis, uh, a Swedish sculptor in residence at Cranbrook Academy, where Aero Saarinen was uh, based and his father Elio, uh, happened to uh, see the design competition and said, Aero, I think it would be much more powerful if it was a triangular cross-section mm. instead of a rectangular cross-section. Never. And so that one you know, just interjection really led to this incredibly dynamic form. It it's already beautiful and dynamic in its own way, but but to make it a triangular cross section, the way it captures the light and mm-hmm. rises up towards the sky is right. just stunning. And the relationship, I, I, more interconnections, St. Louis to Cranbrook Academy and Carl Millis. Uh, Carl Millis designed the fountain in front of Union Station. Okay. So wow. the meeting of the waters, and so so that's one of his works. He also has sculptures at the Missouri Botanical Garden in the reflecting pool as you look towards the Climatron. Those are his sculptures as well, mm-hmm. and he also taught Sheila Burlingame, a sculptor, and uh, and her work is at St. Mark's Church in okay. South St. Louis. Uh, St. Mark is sculpted in in, in 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 placed in the wall to the left of the door as you walk in. So. Many connections between St. Louis and Cranberg Academy of Design. Now, Cranberg was that Sarenin's father's like his his like architectural institute uh, that he yes. had in near, was yes. it near Chicago. Yes, it, it, near Detroit. Okay. Uh, yeah, Cranbrook uh, Institute was designed by Eliel Sarenin at the request of George Booth, a newspaper publicist, and so he he designed this magnificent institution. And and if you ever get a chance to go see it, it's just a lovely campus, a beautiful setting uh, with many lessons in design there as well yeah what's interesting mark about these guys is mm-hmm. it they just didn't design buildings like we have furniture from Ilial oh that he's designed Interesting. And they were into and and fabrics yeah. and hangings and you know chairs mm-hmm. that's that the whole mid-century modern yeah. group mm-hmm. you know uh, so it's really fascinating and, and if I might interject one of the greatest lessons in architectural design by Ilial Saarinen he would tell his students always think about whatever you're designing in the next larger context. A chair in the room, a room in the house, a house in the environment, an environment in the city. Fascinating. In the, in the overall environment. And you just work your way up the scale. Everything relates scale-wise right. and beauty, and everything's interconnected. So right. it was a total design. Mm. Now, for people who aren't familiar with Saarinen, who designed the arch, Name some of the other things that he's done because they may know some of those things. I know one's in New York City and it's recently been remodeled, I think, into a hotel. And then I think, and he, he was really into airports a lot. He's done some specific things that have, have really were, were great designs. Yes, and in addition to the Gateway Arch, he designed the TWA Terminal, which is what you're referring to. JFK, right. Yeah, so that's been converted into a hotel. The Dulles International Airport outside of Washington, D.C. Bell Labs, the Moores and Ezra Stiles Colleges at Yale University, John Deere and Company Headquarters, just a little north of us in Iowa, the North Christian Church, um, and that's in uh, Columbus, uh, 
Indiana, and then uh, CBS Tower in New York City, uh, mm. the, the, the headquarters for CBS. Now, he must not have been, I, I'm per, presuming now, his ego must have been in check for somebody else to come to him and say, hey, your design would look better if it was triangular rather than rectangular. Mm. Well, that's an interesting story uh, because uh, as, as that goes, uh, he accepted that idea. In fact, he looked at many different versions of triangles, uh, mm-hmm. triangles pointing outward, triangles pointing inward, um, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually took the idea uh, 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 that was recommended to him, but never gave Carl Millis credit. Oh. And sadly, they never spoke again, and Carl Millis went back to Sweden. Oh, wow. So, That's sad. Yeah. But you well, recognized him in the book. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I, I think we owe a great deal of, uh, of debt to uh, Carl, and and it really brings up the topic of co-making. Mm-hmm. As, as architects, we we need to be collaborators mm-hmm. in our design. It's many minds contribute to any idea, right? And so so uh, and the arch is no different. So there are many many people who who help to shape this and and mm-hmm. and, um, and develop it. So co-making is a very important concept, mm. right? I agree. Were you going to say something, Mark? No, no. <laughs> I thought you were, I think, thought you were I think getting ready to say something. But there. I think he's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, collaboration is usually one person can't do the whole thing. No, no. And I, and I think it was interesting. The only, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about the arch, <laughs> other than it's the tallest monument in the in the United States. And, right. But I, I find it fascinating when they were building it. They were pretty close together when they brought those two legs together. It was really close, wasn't it? It, it was. It was within a couple of feet. The, 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 the points were coming together mm-hmm. on the last day um, within a few feet. And they had to exert these jacks that pushed the legs apart um, to, to about uh, eight-plus feet and so that the last piece could come in and, and, and fit. And then they released the jacks, and then the legs came and put the pressure on the, the, the final piece, and, yeah. and it was locked in That place. blew my mind because it yeah. was two-and-a-half feet you have in the yeah. book. It was yeah. two-and-a-half feet wide. Is that right? And I it had never... a jacket to eight feet. Right. It's like right. Well, up, right. up 630 feet in the air. But right. I thought they were amazed at how close it was. They thought it was going to be a lot further off, I thought. But maybe I'm wrong. I, it, I could be wrong. It really is a testament to oh. the just the well, mathematics. Well, architects of are doing amazing. My dad stuff. was an architect, oh. and he used to tell me they could. You guys could come up with how many bricks you need on a building, <laughs> down to the brick. Is that yeah. right, John? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, generally, pretty, pretty some, close. Some are better than others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Uh, but no. I, again, that that whole idea of of, of collaboration. The structural mm-hmm. engineers were right. absolutely brilliant. Right. And it's a design that is called an orthotropic design. In that there's an outer layer, which we all see, of stainless steel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. An inner layer of carbon steel, and for the first 300 feet, it's filled with concrete and reinforcing steel, and mm-hmm. and that helps to hold those legs and, and you know pull them back into the earth, so to speak, because mm-hmm. they were leaning in quite quite a bit at that 300 foot height. Right. Um, but that's holding it into place. Above that, it was a hollow double skin for the remaining of uh, up to 630 feet. It's interesting on on sunny days on the south side, you can look up at the arch and actually see that 300 foot mark. You can tell where the where the change goes from really? from from solid concrete. Um, double wall to the hollow I'll have wall. to look a little closer um, next time but, but um, 
Yeah, it, it, it is. It's, it's a testimony to the great craftsmen who, who worked on this. Very, very skilled people. McDonald Construction Company, the crane operators. I'm, I'm in Amazed. awe of those folks. Yeah. Uh, in, in how they, they would hoist up those pieces and yeah. delicately place them, and then they would be welded in place. Mm-hmm. And every night, uh, they, would, they would survey, uh, and they would have to triangulate this uh, with survey equipment from the ground. They would put Christmas tree lights on the corner of, of the what they called cans. The mm-hmm. triangles were they called them cans, and they would measure points in space and then take it back down to a benchmark on the ground, do the calculations <laughs> to figure out that these uh, two points were indeed going to meet at 630 feet in height, Amazing. beginning 630 feet apart. Amazing! It, it's truly remarkable. The reason they did it at night is because this is a steel structure. It heats up. It expands. Mm-hmm. So right. they had to wait for the nighttime for it to cool off a little mm-hmm. so, that, so that it would be a true measurement. Wow. You're listening to uh, St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston. We're talking to John Gunther. He's an architect here in the St. Louis area, and he's also an author, and he wrote the book The Gateway Arch and Illustrated Timeline, which is available from many bookstores and Reedy Press, and you're going to be doing some signings, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, John. Mm-hmm. But there is, uh, you know, I guess one thing that I totally ignored growing up, I knew about the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial and the whole, but this was really one person's idea to to really acknowledge Thomas Jefferson mm-hmm. and his efforts to to get the land that we live in right now and the Louisiana Purchase. I really kind of just kind of went over my head like that. I wasn't really like, well, I just thought it was to commemorate, you know, the, the purchase, you know. But it was more, I think, as you kind of stated, more towards leaning towards Jefferson and his efforts to do this. Right, and and all those that followed as, they, right. as the country grew. And, and it really, um, you know, talks about... Um, you know, the importance of St. Louis, its central location, not only physically, but in their nation's history. But the person you're referring to, um, uh, uh, Luther Eli Smith, a civic leader and attorney, and he had this idea in 19, late 1933 when he's returning by train uh, and he's passing by the, the riverfront and looking at it. And in his opinion, it was uh, sort of on the decline mm-hmm. and decaying. And what if the city could have a, a national monument to Thomas Jefferson and and, uh, yeah. and those who, who traveled westward? And there is a couple questions I have here uh, that, you know, this famous historical land that had, what is it, 37 acres of buildings removed or something blocks 37 blocks okay Mm -hmm. of and then down there even at the at the north leg of the arch there was a significant event that took place at on that ground where the north leg is would you kind of describe what that is yeah and actually two significant events near at and near the uh, north leg of the arch and that's the the beauty of trying to connect the dots of history uh, across time Um, the the first if you go back to 1854 and dread and harriet scott when they were suing for their freedom and um, they had two trials previously and they were held in the old courthouse Mm -hmm. but the third trial was a federal trial and at that time the government was renting space on on first street in the papan building and that if it were standing today would be just uh, at the north leg of the arch uh-huh. and and that was the the, the trial and uh, roswell field the attorney 
defended them, and that trial then made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court um, and, and the infamous decision by um, Roger Tani uh, in denying their freedom and the case, um, which ultimately precipitated stressors that led to the Civil War. Right. So quite a, an important event uh, in our nation's history occurring near the north leg of the arch. The other interesting thing, if you fa- that's 1854, if you fast forward 110 years, uh, Percy Green, mm-hmm. civil rights activist, uh-huh. um, and Richard Daly, they both climbed the north leg of the arch in 1964 to protest the, um, the, um, the lack of, of, of employment of African Americans. And they wanted to see a, a 10% employment of African Americans on the job site. So they climbed the north leg of the arch, effectively stopped construction. It was a peaceful protest. And um, later on, the United States government then um, enforced the Equal Equal Employment Opportunity Act, so nationally. So that, again, a very important uh, national act that occurred on the north leg of the arch. You mentioned also those 37 blocks. There was great historical uh, architecture that Mm was just kind of thrown away. Yes. what, What are some of those things that we would be seen if they still existed down there? Well, it's, it's a, a great question. Um, in fact, it's beautifully covered. Um, Tom Grady wrote a book on the lost uh, uh, riverfront, and, and I had the privilege of writing the introduction to that. And, and it documents uh, the uh, Historic American Building Survey, HABs. Uh, they documented every single building, and those are in the book. And you would see an amazing range of architecture um, I, I talked. Uh, I referred to it as form f- uh, follows lot. Okay, so hmm. every square foot of of an individual's lot was a building on those streets, and they maximized it because they were they many of them were warehouses. So you needed to maximize the length and width um, and height, if you could, of of that block. And because they had party walls. You really only had the, 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 the street side and the alley side for openings for light and ventilation and to bring goods in and to take goods out. Mm-hmm. Therefore, there was a, uh, an evolution of design that began to create this framework, a, a steel skeleton, actually cast iron skeletons, if you will, structural frames uh, with the columns and the beams. And they are referred to, they really, we think of them as the predecessors to the Chicago School of High Rises that we know today. And in looking at uh, at some of they they pushed the the spans and they pushed the heights and more light came in more ventilation and so on and you could see the goods as you walk by, um, and and in studying each one of these buildings for the preparation for the introduction of the book, um, I was amazed at some of the architectural styles. I actually came across a building that was almost a miniature Wainwright building oh, wow. before the Wainwright oh, building wow. with a base, a middle, and a top with, with a, col- a column structure and then a wonderful cap to it. Uh, but but uh, a lot of great architecture. And as I say, you know, the Gateway Arch is of its time and yet timeless, but one wonders today, you know, if you had that amount of architectural history on the riverfront, mm-hmm. I doubt it would have been torn down today. Right. But in those days, they felt it was okay to tear, tear it down. Right. Uh, they, they couldn't see the architectural value necessarily. They did save the old courthouse, the old cathedral, and, and the, the old, old rock, rock house. house. Right. So, um, but, but they could have saved much more, and it would have been fascinating to right. see. In fact, it would have been fascinating to see the arch rise out of that, that context. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. 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 I was surprised. I really didn't know that the uh, court, old courthouse 
had originally been a federal style and then mm -hmm. was expanded upon that and then it also had two domes i didn't know that that right. that, that, that was going on yeah. never knew never no. knew that right no. yeah yeah different styles over time and so that's always uh, fascinating we, we think we know the courthouse today because that's all we see right, right. Mm -hmm. but but when you go back in time and go back to 1828 and see what it looked like and and it's an original version um it, it's quite stunning uh, to see that yeah. it is it is very stunning mm -hmm. i want to mention a couple things more about the book for those who are listening again the title is the gateway arch an illustrated timeline by john gunther it's uh, a reedy press book it's also available at many bookstores. John's going to be doing some book signings coming up and I want to mention a couple of those quickly and and then we'll, we'll we're going to take a brief break and we'll also mention these at the end. He's going to be at Barnes and Noble on May the 13th out on Clarkson Road and there's another book signing at the Daniel Boone Library in Ellisville. That's on May 31st. On June the 8th, he's going to be out at Washington Public Library in Washington, Missouri, down at the Fieldhouse Museum on South Broadway on June the 16th. Then he's going to be at an uh, Oasis St. Louis uh, in Clayton on June the 22nd. June the 25th, he's going to be at the Basilica, the Old Cathedral, on June the 25th, and October the 28th at the Campbell House Museum on Locust Street, not too far from where I live. So There you go. And and the beauty on October 28th is that's the anniversary of the last piece being set into place. There you go. And we'll talk about that. <laughs> oh. Where were you when that happened? I remember that specifically. Wow. It's ingrained. It's kind of like that JFK assassination oh. thing. It's ingrained in my mind. Oh, my. So we're going to come back after a, a brief break. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston of St. Louis in Tune. You're listening to the U.S. Radio Network. Arnold Stricker of St. Louis in Tune on behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation. In 1857, the Dred Scott decision was a major legal event and catalyst that contributed to the Civil War. The decision declared that Dred Scott could not be free because he was not a citizen. The 14th Amendment, also called the Dred Scott Amendment, granted citizenship to all born or naturalized here in our country and was intended to overturn the U.S. Supreme Court decision on July 9, 1868. The Dred Scott Heritage Foundation is requesting a commemorative stamp to be issued from the U.S. Postal Service to recognize and remember the heritage of this amendment by issuing a stamp with the likeness of the man Dred Scott. But we need your support and the support of thousands of people who would like to see this happen. To achieve this goal, we ask you to download, sign, and share the one-page petition with others. To find the petition, please go to dredscottlives.org and click on the Dred Scott Petition Drive on the right side of the page. On behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation, this has been Arnold Stricker of St. Louis In Tune. At St. Louis In Tune, we strive to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories, as well as interviews about current and historic issues and events that involve people, places, and things. We cover a wide range of topics, such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports, and that's just to name a few. While St. Louis In Tune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we also connect to what's going on nationally as well. If you missed any of our previously aired programs of St. Louis In Tune, simply visit stlintune.com. 
That's stlintune.com. There you'll find the show notes and everything that was mentioned in that episode and all the other great episodes as well. And if you've got an area that you'd like us to examine deeper, well, just let us know by dropping us a note at stlintune at gmail.com. That's stlintune at gmail.com. St. Louis in Tune. It's heard Monday through Friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the U.S. and, of course, right here in St. Louis. Our website, again, is stlintune.com. Visit us today. That's stlintune.com. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston. We are talking about the St. Louis Gateway Arch with John Gunther, who is our guest. He's the author of The Gateway Arch, an illustrated timeline. Great book, folks. You need to get it from Reedy Press. It is a, a timeline which gives snapshots of historical uh, individuals and things that happened along the way to end up uh, where the monument, we see it every single day when we get up. Wow! And say, well, there's the arch. You know, everybody says, "There's the arch." John, John, are they amazed that it stays? It's still standing. Did, did I hear that somewhere? Well, people always wonder, given its height and uh-huh. width and slenderness. You know, that they it, are amazed at that structural capability. And yes, it is standing. And yes, Erosarinen said it was <laughs> built for the ages. So good. So it's not going anywhere. Okay. <laughs> it took 23 hours to pour the concrete for the foundations. <laughs> just to pour the concrete oh like 23 goodness. hours that's like what where do you, one leg and where do one you, leg yeah where do you get all that concrete <laughs> how, how many bags of concrete oh, would you no, haul in you your go. pickup yeah, yeah, to do that it's a lot of driving back and forth to home depot <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> come on <laughs> why do we take these exit ramps so so the date of the and the time of the last piece of the arch mm-hmm. if you would just tell that then i'm going to ask a question okay yeah the uh, the last place was uh, last piece was set into place October twenty eighth, nineteen sixty five, and uh, that was at eleven o four a.m. Do you know where you were? I was in Mrs. Medcalf's class in fourth grade at Jackson Park Elementary School mm-hmm. in University City, and we were watching on TV. Yeah, I was at Our Lady of Lourdes. We were doing the same thing. It was, and I a think my parents deal. donated their TV for the day. It was a black and white, black and white, right? little zenith. That's right. With a space commander um, uh, a channel changer thing. Okay. A remote control. Yeah. <laughs> One of the students was remote control for us. Uh-huh. And the fact that it was done during the daytime, yeah. uh, there's a story behind that as oh, well. Oh, my. What's okay. that? John well, because of the arch expanding in the heat of the mm-hmm. sun, the construction company would have preferred to do it in relative darkness. Right. Mm-hmm. But the the it was a moment of celebration for St. Right. Louis right. and and so uh, the political forces to be said no it needs to be in the middle of the day and and as such the St. Louis Fire Department was uh, cooling off the south leg of the arch mm. with a stream of water in order to k- keep it from expanding in mm. order for everything to come together I do remember when you mentioned that it's it kind of jogs my memory a little bit yeah because yeah. the visual was like yeah it was, and it was. Yeah, that was we a concern. We were all wondering, is this going to go together? Are they going to be like 
off an inch and it's going to be, oh, no, yeah. you know, what are we going to do now? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it was 1 64th of an inch tolerance. So that's what so yeah. that's pretty precise. That's pretty darn good. Wow. Those darn architects. What is the oh. thing with them? <laughs> well, again, I, I just celebrate all yeah. all the people involved, right. the, the engineers, the, mm. the the construction folks, the crane operators, yeah. the welders. A great team effort. Great. Yeah. So, what might be considered the first gateway to the West? Well. I think uh, when you think of the Eads Bridge, uh, ah. another very dramatic uh, yeah. structure, also in arch, spanning right. between those those two great stone piers, uh -huh. but the, the first uh, bridge to cross the Mississippi south of the Missouri River, right. um, that really began to open up the east-west connection, uh -huh. so physically and and um, and otherwise. Uh, so before that, uh, the Wiggins Ferry Company would uh, dismantle, uh, the, the trains would be dismantled, they'd be placed on barges shipped across and then reattached for the westward journey. So so I, I think of the Eads Bridge of 1874 as possibly the first gateway. And yeah. Mark and I have interviewed yeah. someone who kind of told us why the Eads Bridge was placed there mm -hmm. and not south, why all that, the terminal railroad tracks are in mm -hmm. front and, had a, and they're still there, but was because of Illinois and Chicago's influence of mm -hmm. the railroads at the time. They didn't want us to go right into where the the Union Station area is right, the old Shoto Pond area mm -hmm. uh, across the Mississippi. They wanted to make it hard, and so that's what happened, and that's why the tunnel mm -hmm. went underneath and where Metrolink runs right now right. and all that kind of stuff right. like that. Right, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Again, the, there's architecture and the built environment is shaped by so many forces, right. and it's fun to peel that back mm -hmm. and understand why something is the way it is and where it is located. And and the trestle that you mentioned uh, was of necessity as well in terms of, of bringing the trains in and along the riverfront, and it was elevated. And But in effect, it, it somewhat visually cut off the, the wharf, uh, the landing right. from the rest of the, uh, right. the buildings. And it was mm. something that had to be dealt with before the arch could even begin. It was actually the first phase of the arch was to relocate those train tracks uh, further to the west uh, and, and put it in a series of tunnels and open cuts uh, so that it would pass by inconspicuously on the arch grounds. Yeah, because I guess if you think about, if you were visually looking at the river and the flood wall, as we call it, was gone, and the arch wasn't there, there would be a, a natural incline going right. up towards the courthouse, and all these buildings would have been built on an incline, right. and that would a tremendous amount of fill to put in there. Right, right, yeah, and 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 the other the other piece of that as well, and and those flood walls actually, uh, Saarinen uh, designed those as overlooks as well at the north and south end, um, uh, but but um, actually at one point his original design idea was that the arch would be much closer to the river, uh, almost on the landing. Ooh, wow. uh, but but again the, the 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 train tracks had something to do with that mm -hmm. to move it further back, and mm -hmm. not to mention our flood conditions from time to time. So. Yeah, I know John mentioned the Eads Bridge. It's like, uh, yeah, we need to build a bridge across the Mississippi. How many bridges have you built? Well, I've never built one before. <laughs> 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 and James Eads was just an, a brilliant engineer. Mm -hmm. Truly. A brilliant engineer. As, as you know, I, I really enjoyed what you said about the co-making mm -hmm. of things and the uh, power of an idea mm -hmm. and getting an idea from somebody's brain or their drawing into reality it's and this this just didn't happen overnight you know you had the dream of somebody saying we need to do some kind of memorial mm -hmm. and that was in the 30s 1933 
Yes, Luther Eli Smith said we should try to create a, a memorial in 1933. He put that idea forth to Mayor Dickman. He liked the idea. In 1934, a commission was established here. And then fairly quickly thereafter, um, they made trips to Washington, D.C. to do a little arm twisting uh, right. to get the, the, the backing of the, of the government. And, and, and so uh, one event led to another. Um, but um, eventually, uh, the, 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 the wheels were set into motion. But it wasn't really until 1947 that the competition occurred. Huh. So in the meantime, those 37 blocks were cleared of the buildings. And I think back, it's one thing to clear that site knowing you're going to get a gateway arch design. Right. It's another to clear those sites the site not knowing what you were going to have in the way of a national competition mm -hmm. uh, result. Um, and so, uh, again, I co-making and part of the process, having a, a really great jury to review the architectural submissions was very key to to the success as well. So they, they picked out some outstanding architects uh, nationally known to review the submissions. And, and I'd like to also give a shout out to Louis LeBaume, FAIA, uh, a, a really celebrated local architect who actually wrote the competition. Mm -hmm. and, and in writing it, he said it should be national in scope and that it should be in two parts. So, and that was really key because had it been just a first phase uh, pick a winner at that point, uh, we may not have had Aero Saarinen. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so, um, so. Harris Armstrong, a local architect, actually came in first place on the first phase of the competition. But they had a second phase where they reworked a little bit of the regulations and, and, and raised the bar, as it were, and Arrow mm. was unanimously selected. Because there was uh, a lot of submissions, mm. there over 100 submissions, right. and then they got it down to like semifinals and then the right. finals. And, right. Yeah. So you have, to, you have to read that in the book, folks. You have to buy the book and get that information from, <laughs> that's right. from that. Reedy Press. Reedy Press, that's right. So what was the big surprise for you in writing this book? You know, you've done a tremendous amount of research, and sometimes you just can't put it all out there. Yeah. Uh, but what was, like, the big um, wow for you? Well, um, you know, that's, that's a, a good and difficult question because it, it's so, everything is so vast. Um, I Maybe I, I just – not so much a surprise, if I may, but, but just the – Again, that persistence to the vision, and um, you know, going back to August of 1947, and uh, there, there is the competition booklet that Aero Saarinen, when he received it, began sketching the design idea out right then and there on on the pages of the competition. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so he not only was thinking about what that uh, monument should be, a gateway arch, but he was also actually laying out the competition boards. How will the jury view it so that they can appreciate the design? Ah. So that's a, a wonderful surprise, if you will. Um, just that instant, uh, I, I call it lightning in a bottle, if you will. Right. <laughs> but that inspiration, that aha moment of, of, of that. Um, but then the... Um, how the arch was shaped over and over and over again you know the first design 700 feet wide and 556 feet tall yeah, that's a, and, i didn't know that yeah either. so so and now as as we know it's 630 feet high and wide mm -hmm. um and so and and it was it was centered to the north of of the old cathedral uh, the old courthouse and to the south and eventually on the center line uh but but one of the things that was fascinating to me was how the engineers created formulas to study the um, the flattened catenary design. It's not a parabola; it's a catenary, and um, and and so with the, with that shape, 
still Eros Aronin trusted his eye more than anything. So no matter how many drawings or, or calculations were made, he had physical models made and he would study that. And when it was right for him, for, the, for his eye, um, then it was okay to go with it. And so that's why it evolved into that more rounded top, that flattened catenary where he pushed down on it, so to speak. I'm glad you brought that up because he did that also with the TWA building. He liked, he crawled into his models right. to see what people would be looking at. And and that was a question I had. Their presentation had to be obviously some blueprints or mm -hmm. some drawings, mm -hmm. and they had to actually have a physical model of what this was going to look like, or well, the, the whole grounds. The and initial, things. the initial were a couple of boards that were submitted, okay. and, and they were on display at the at the. Um, um, at the old courthouse, uh, but um, later on the models came as they as they received the project uh, to to do that, and then um, they studied it in physical model form. And are these things still available down at the uh, museum? Um, these uh, uh, these models, um, I would have to do a little further research to see exactly where, what which institution has these models now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. If you have any questions, check it out. The Gateway Arch, an illustrated timeline by John Gunther. John, would you uh, briefly tell us, uh, tell individuals who are interested in architecture why they should continue with that vision? Uh, and and what's it, what does it take to be, you know, just not a house designer or, you know, because I, when I view architecture now in light of these individuals and back in, in kind of during the, the 30s to the 50s, that mid-century modern, it was everything. Like you said, it was just not, well, I'm not, I'm a house architect or I'm a hospital architect. They did all of it down to the furniture and everything. Talk to some individuals, some students out there who are considering a career. What do you tell them? My first uh, statement is stay curious. It all springs from a curiosity, asking why and why not, and and do you have a better idea for something and and a, a better vision for what could be, how to improve the built environment, and and so uh, so I think that's key uh, with the idea of staying curious and always lifelong learning, and really that's where this book grows from as well, staying curious and lifelong learning, continuing to learn uh, more and more about our our area, our history. Uh, the architecture that we are gifted with here in St. Louis by those who came before. So, so I would just say stay curious there. Um, and, and then uh, go experience the architecture that you admire firsthand and, and ask yourself, why do you like it? What do you notice? How does the sunlight play upon the surfaces of the building? Um, and what is it like to walk through the space and, and envelop you? Um, nothing like going to a Frank Lloyd Wright house, and we have a couple of them here in St. Louis, to get that feeling of, of movement through the building and, and how the space constricts and then um, explodes, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, opens up with vaulted ceilings and views out to nature and so on. And then how does the building relate to the uh, natural environment or built environment? Um, you know, if, if you're building on, on a site that's not been built on before, how do you work with Mother Nature, preserve the trees, the topography, the, the, the watershed, et cetera, so that you are doing uh, the most with the least and using the least materials possible in this day and age? And then, um, and how can you work with the sunlight? Can you orient your new building to the south to bring in natural light and sunlight 
to help heat the building in the winter and and then shade it in the summertime. If you're building in in uh, an already um, uh, uh, existing building, we call that adaptive reuse, and there's great potential for that. And I think uh, young students are quite fascinated to look at an existing building and, and say, this is the way it works today, but what could I do to make it better and how could we reuse it in another fashion? Mm -hmm. um, I had the privilege of designing Alberici's headquarters at Page and 170 with right. the wind turbine. Okay, that right. was a 1950s metal manufacturing plant. Right, right. And it was 300 feet across and 500 feet long and it became Alberici Construction uh, Corporate Headquarters. The South Bay has the, uh, has the office area the north two bays has parking under right. roof and the middle we opened it up to create a courtyard for natural light and ventilation but we did that by adaptively reusing the building so none of the steel structure none of those materials had to go to a landfill we, we were able to reuse them right. it was energy that was already spent let's make use of it and add to that design and then we added a south face uh, what's called the sawtooth to orient due south it wasn't quite south it went face southwest so we oriented the new addition south so we could absolutely control the sunlight coming into the building and bounce light in to help light the interiors hmm. so at any rate there's great potential so really stay curious ask why and why not and what can you bring to make this world a better place wow that's john gunther he's an architect and the author of the gateway arch an illustrated timeline available through reedy press john thanks for coming in and talk with us at st. on st louis in tune uh -huh. thank you very much it was a real pleasure uh -huh. we're going to take a brief break we'll be right back this is arnold stricker with mark langston of st louis in tune you're listening to the u.s radio network You know, each time that we plan a show for St. Louis In Tune, we strive to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories, as well as interviews about current and historic issues and events that involve people, places, and things. And while St. Louis In Tune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we also connect what's going on nationally as well. Our topics cover a wide range of arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, sports, and that's just to name a few. We know there's many radio stations, programs, even podcasts that you could be listening to, and we're glad that you've chosen to listen to St. Louis In Tune. If you've missed any of our previously aired programs of St. Louis In Tune, simply visit stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. There, you'll find every show from our first to our most current. Use the search engine to look for a show that might interest you from one of the many topics that we've covered. And drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. You can do that at stlintune at gmail.com. That's stlintune at gmail.com. St. Louis In Tune, heard Monday through Friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the U.S. and, of course, right here in St. Louis. And don't forget, check out our website, stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. 
This is Arnold Stricker of St. Louis in Tune on behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation. In 1857, the Dred Scott decision was a major legal event and catalyst that contributed to the Civil War. The decision declared that Dred Scott could not be free because he was not a citizen. The 14th Amendment, also called the Dred Scott Amendment, granted citizenship to all born or naturalized here in our country and was intended to overturn the U.S. Supreme Court decision on July 9, 1868. The Dred Scott Heritage Foundation is requesting a commemorative stamp to be issued from the U.S. Postal Service to recognize and remember the heritage of this amendment by issuing a stamp with the likeness of the man Dred Scott. But we need your support and the support of thousands of people who would like to see this happen. To achieve this goal, we ask you to download, sign, and share the one-page petition with others. To find the petition, please go to dredscottlives.org and click on the Dred Scott Petition Drive on the right side of the page. On behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation, this has been Arnold Stricker of St. Louis Yeah. <laughs> I think you would play this all the time. I would. I like that funky stuff. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune, where we play funky kind of stuff. Ooh, pardon me. Turn the wrong thing down. And you want to do a Funky Fridays, don't you? I want to do a Funky Fridays, right, yeah. Yeah. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. want to give you some more information uh, on John's book signings. Again, they're going to be May the 13th at Barnes & Noble on Clarkson Road. May the 31st at the Daniel Boone Library in Ellisville. Mm-hmm. June the 8th at the Washington Public Library in Washington, Missouri, or if you're from South City, Washington. Um, June the 16th at the Fieldhouse Museum down on South Broadway. And you can check these out for the the times. And then we have June the 22nd at the Oasis St. Louis in Clayton. Sunday the 25th of June at the St. Louis Basilica, the mm. old cathedral museum, and then October the 28th at the Campbell House Museum. So there you go, folks. John's going to be busy. He's, he's a busy guy. And what a wandering nomad. Yeah, what what wonderful information. <laughs> and you know, those are, that's the kind of information that you have you have so much you want to be able to you know, give it mm-hmm. and let other people experience what you have learned. Right. And, you know, the, when he talked about lifelong learning, that's very, very important. You know, we that's one of the goals of the show is to give information out, not just to open your head and you know, pour it in mm-hmm. and close it up, but to have you think, <laughs> have you investigate, have you be curious mm-hmm. and, and check things out. So, you know what else I like about John? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> There's a lot of things. But that he's from Wash U, Washington University. Right, right. They have a great architect. My dad went there to become an architectural engineer. Um, and some I, some engineers dog Washington U. <laughs> well, I, I love and the fact. I, they do. And I, don't, and, and I, I think it's a bad rap. I, I wanted to talk to John a little bit about that. But uh, Washington U is a great architectural school. Yes. And the fact that John came from there, did this book and his research on this, this is just a wonderful circle. Yeah, did some that. adjunct work there. But I like the fact that he's also a University of Kansas graduate, as I am. See, I knew that was going to get. I knew you were going to put that in there. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And that's where some of that argument came. (laughs) The the KU guys think they're better than the WashU guys. I don't want to. I don't want to get into that. Yes, I should have. There's there's a lot of gone down that road. No, you're fine. There's there's a lot of good things happening in St. Louis, and I know I had mentioned at the front end uh, that. 
there are some celebrations and birthdays. Mm. And did you know that the Butterfly House is 25 years old this year? I had no idea. And so, folks, if they, they have a lot of different, and all of these places are going to have some special exhibits, and mm-hmm. you know they're putting out the extra, you know, red carpet kind of things. Mm-hmm. But eight thousand square foot glass conservatory to highlight that relationship between butterflies and insects and pollinators. Mm-hmm. So check that out. That's the Butterfly House. You can get more information at the Missouri Botanical Garden, mm-hmm. the Compton Hill Water Tower. Oh yeah, one of three existing water towers is, old water towers is, that's the one on grand and 44 yes okay and then there's uh one up north is uh, that open two up north in, on grand is is the compton open i thought it was it's, open it's or, supposed to be open during the summer on days when the moon is full i think that's what it is no seriously okay. when the moon's full so you can see more i, I thought he was kidding me oh no, I, no you're, you're serious oh. about this <laughs> when so, i, I, no. I <laughs> Is that? I didn't. I, now that I see, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> you got to. You got to be yeah. ready for that stuff. I know. Mark. I'm sorry. I had other things. On. No. So they're they're doing some renovations of that. Um, and that, Compton that, Hill that, Water Tower. That museum is right across the street from it that burned. Yes. And I hate seeing that. All the, I drive over there and the roof is all burned yeah, up. It's and, still just sitting there, right? And it's been years. Oh. It, it wasn't like last week. This has been a couple of few years ago now. Well, I could make a comment, but it probably wouldn't be nice. Okay, I know. I know. The, the mayor's on the phone for you right now. That's okay. <laughs> Put me on speed dial there. Okay. There's the Twang Fest is celebrating 25 years. The Twang Fest. In St. Louis? The longest running homegrown music festival. That's in St. Louis. 25. Yes. Yes. Uh, and did you know the Steel Guitar Hall of Fame is here in St. Louis? I did Louis. not know that. Why in the world is it here in St. Louis and not Nashville? But I, I wish I could answer the question that I just Somebody asked. Somebody beat him to it. But it is. The Steel Guitar Hall of And actually, the Hall of Fame for the Steel Guitar used to be in the basement of the, uh, uh, I call it Stouffer's. What, what, Riverfront Inn. Yeah, yeah, the Riverfront Inn. Yeah, the one that's been vacant for 15 years where trees are growing out of the roof. <laughs> that's, the, that's the one. That's the place. Okay. Uh, the St. Louis University Museum of Contemporary Religious Art is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. All right. Happy so birthday. So that's uh, slu.edu for more information. The Pinup Bowl. The Pinup oh, Bowl. Yeah. Joe Edwards has kind of uh, gotten that going in the loop. That's right. going to be 20 years old. 20 years old. Wow. The Alpine Shop in Kirkwood. Yeah. 50 years old. Oh, stop it. Can you believe that? No. No, That's stop. crazy. Kirkwood, Chesterfield, and oh, making Columbia. Us, making us all feel old here today. Yeah. Uh, let's what see what else we got here. Oh, Fontbonne University, 100 years old oh, this my. year. My mom was Six there. Sisters of St. Joseph came to Crondelet in the year 1836, founded the St. Joe's Academy for Girls five years later, and the rest is history. Huh. The McDonald Planetarium. Yeah. Excuse me, the James S. McDonald Planetarium. Oh, yeah. 60 years old. 60 years wow. old. I remember when they built that. Yeah. And there was a joke. I think it was some Wash U students put it's at, always... at Christmas time, they put a ribbon around oh, and yeah. Christmas lights, and oh, what are some kids doing? Everybody loved it. And so now it's a tradition where they put right. the, ro- the, the ribbon, ribbon around it. Right, right. So oh, that. Yeah. That little prank became something that's a darn wash you. I'm telling you, a, a, what. a regular thing going on here. <laughs> they always, yeah, yeah. You know, kindergarten was developed here in St. Louis. No, uh, Susan Blow. There was actually some some kindergarten prior to that, but this was the first public one. Uh, 150 years old. Wow, no blowback from that. No, okay. No, oh, okay. 
Speaking of humor. <laughs> okay. Speaking of humor. No, you don't have any humor. Oh man, I've got it. Do I've, you? I've got it here. Okay. I've got to get my get my phone here. All right, ready to go here. Well, uh, okay. All right. Okay, you tell me when you're ready. Uh, yeah. Okay, I think I'm ready. Go All ahead. Right. Looking for someone to take to couples therapy and see how long it takes the therapist to notice we don't know each other. <laughs> wow. Now. Why do you the, do the this? Da- what is the date today? I don't know. It's the uh, 9th. It's May 9th. Okay, uh-huh. so folks, if you're listening in December, just don't worry about it. <laughs> but what's happening school-wide right now? Uh, finals. Finals. Okay, we're getting ready to the end, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, ki- the student goes, hey, can I do something to help my grade? Teacher, um, it's May. Student, sorry, may I do something to help my grade? <laughs> Sounds like my mom. <laughs> okay, so here's... You know, an attorney joke. So uh-huh. if you're an, an attorney listening, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, attorneys questioning a doctor on the stand. Attorney, doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? No. Attorney, did you check for blood pressure? No. Attorney, did you check for breathing? No. So then is it possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? <laughs> no. How can you be so sure, doctor? Because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. But could the patient have still been alive nevertheless? Yes, it is possible that he could have been alive and practicing law. Oh, my. It's just terrible. That's just terrible. We're gonna... Did you know that the leading cause for injury in old men is them thinking they are still young men? <laughs> And reminders, this is reminders from your child, parents, who are engaging in, their children are engaging in sporting activities. Uh I'm a kid. Yeah. It's just a game. My coach is a volunteer. The umpires are human. And no college scholarships will be handed out today. (laughs) Thank goodness. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Okay. People say love is the best feeling, mm-hmm. but I think finding a toilet when you have or having diarrhea is better. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm with you on that one. Okay. <laughs> a fact is information minus emotion. An opinion mm-hmm. is information plus experience. Ignorance is an opinion lacking information, and stupidity is an opinion that ignores a fact. I got it. you. Got to follow along on these things. I, that was that was okay. Did you hear that Julie Andrews uh, will no longer endorse no. cheap lipstick? No. It crumbles easily and makes her breath smell. She explained, "The super color fragile lipstick gives me Whoa. halitosis." Oh, oh, golly! Wait, we did we get it? Give her another. Okay. <laughs> And, you know, if you ever go fishing, some guys have a fishing spot, and some guys are really, you know, the lures. they got a special lure and all that stuff. Right. So these two guys went to this guy's favorite fishing spot, and he says, how do you like my secret fishing spot? The other guy goes, it's really cool. Not even the fish know about it. (laughs) I know that spot. And then my coworker said to me today, you shouldn't eat red meat. Mm -hmm. I said, my grandfather lived to be 100 years old. He said, did he eat red meat? I said, no. He minded his own business. Wow. And 
for the last one today, folks. No, you wait a minute. Hold it. Where's we need an applause or something? <laughs> it's okay to fall apart sometimes. Tacos do, and we still love them. Oh my gosh, great! Thank you, Arnold. <laughs> okay, that's tough. You're tough. You're very tough. It's a, it's a tough life. It's a tough room. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks. That's all for this hour. We thank you for listening. Don't forget, when the Martians invade, there's only one race, the human race. And every one of us have different characteristics and is uniquely valuable. St. Louis in Tune is a production of Motif Media Group and the U.S. Radio Network. For St. Louis in Tune, co-host Mark Langston, I'm Arnold Stricker. Remember to walk worthy and let your light shine. <laughs>